Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode 129 of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, I'm pulling a recording from the vaults. My father, Paul Lanigan, is a podcaster as well. He has his own podcast targeting towards sales leaders. He did a podcast with Chris Voss, a ex-FBI negotiator. Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI as well as the FBI's hostage negotiator representative for the National Security Council's hostage working group. During his government career, he also represented the US government on two international conferences sponsored by the G8 as an expert in kidnapping. Prior to becoming the FBI lead international kidnapping negotiator, Chris served as the lead crisis negotiator for the New York City Division of the FBI. So, what you're about to listen to is a 39-minute recording pulled from the vaults of a conversation Paul and Chris had two, three years ago. I hope you enjoy, and I'll be back next Tuesday with episode 130 with a new guest. Till then, take care and have a great weekend. Chris, you're very welcome to the podcast. Chris, what does a small town Iowa boy how, how do you get from there to being an FBI hostage negotiator? <laughs> you know, you, you go up to the first major interstate and you make a right, you go about 2,000 miles. <laughs> and then? Yeah, man. You know, uh, it was just one left field thing out of another, but I've always liked, um, I like, uh, forcing decisions, you know, in a crisis response, somebody's got to make a decision. You can't procrastinate. And I like figuring stuff out. I mean, I like, I like, I like getting ahead of the game. Um, I think of myself as kind of an average dude, uh, not, not particularly bright. So I sort of pride myself in outsmarting people who think they're smarter than me. <laughs> I, 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 I'm always wary when people say I'm not that bright because you know damn well that's a bright person because <laughs> an idiot would never admit to being not that bright. <laughs> well, you know, one of my, my, my son has picked up a variety of impressions of me. And one of the first impressions that always made, uh, especially students that we taught in MBA classes laugh is he says, this is my dad. I'm not that smart, but I'm smarter than you. And that makes you an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And, and, and is that in itself a, I, I'm going to call it an empathy trick. It's, it's not a trick. Maybe technique is a better word. But is that kind of playing that one down in a conversation, is that designed to put somebody else at, their, at ease or maybe not be on the defensive? Is there a technique in that? Yeah, you know, it, it, it really is. I mean, and just because there's a technique doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. But yeah, you yep. know, um, I, I don't want people to feel like they should have their guard up around me, either before, during, or after they've interacted with me. So yeah, I'd prefer that people relax and drop their guard and, mm-hmm. and see that you know, we can get along and we can do some cool stuff together. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's true because I think expertise can be intimidating. And so therefore, to put people at, at their ease, I think it's important not to be the expert in the room, 
what's that old expression? Never be the smartest person in the room, even when you are. Yeah, you know, it can be intimidating. And then it, it always is a problem with implementation. Like we, uh, when I was at the Bureau, there, there was a guy who was great at talking in jargon and getting upper level commanders to agree to stuff because they were afraid to admit that they didn't understand what he said. Mm. But he then he could get he could get a lot of stuff, but he could never get anything done because since nobody knew what the hell he was talking about and they didn't want to admit that they didn't know what he was talking about, follow through was a huge problem. Mm. I, I could believe it. Uh, tell me, Chris, never spit the difference. Uh, is that book very much aimed at a business audience? Yeah, it was uh, completely aimed at a business audience. We'd hope that people that just wanted to get better at their own lives would pick it up, you know, the quote self-help category, if you will. But it, yeah, it was, uh, it's hostage negotiation for business and then people are applying it in their personal lives. And, and I, I got to tell you, people say stuff to me that I still don't know exactly how to respond to because I had one guy who's heavy into real estate in Florida who said, you gave me my son back. Wow. And I'm like, you know, I didn't, I don't know what to say to that, but yeah, mm. people are using it in their personal lives an awful lot too. Mm. Well then th let's just talk about that for a moment because people listening to this might think a hostage negotiator, tense, a lot of pressure, lives are on the line where business negotiation, yeah, it, it's, it's serious in the moment, but guess what? Nobody's going to die. Everybody goes home to their own bed. Where are the parallels, the, the, the commonalities between one scenario and you know, the, the hostage negotiation scenario and a regular common regard business negotiation? I got to tell you something. The funny thing is, is people in business negotiations act like this deal is the end of the world way more than we ever encountered on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, in hostage, like business people have more stories being in name calling and shouting matches in their negotiations, hostage negotiators, I, principally by the way we approach things, we don't have as many people yell at us as people do in, in business negotiations. Like the name calling and the storming out of meetings and intentionally destroying deals in business negotiations is far more pervasive than it ever was in hostage negotiations. Yeah, that's true. I've seen things thrown across a room in business association. Yeah. It, it's it crazy, is. right? That, yeah, that, yeah, uh, yeah. that yeah. it would be more emotional than hostage negotiations. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess in one context that people's ego, their whole self identity is often on the line in a business negotiation, who they are and how they portray themselves is often on the line. Yeah, it really, it really is in a, in, in a lot of ways. And, and there's never one side that intentionally uh, has an approach that's designed to dial things down immediately. Everybody's determined to get what they want. And hostage negotiators, our, our approach starts with, we're going to dial this down to a reasonable level from the very beginning. And that's why we get things under control fast. Yeah, no, makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Tell me something. I came across something you said and you talked about getting people to say no or, or getting them comfortable with no. And this, this rang a bell with me because it's something we talk a lot about when we're with salespeople as you, you could call it a technique. I, 
I'm always uncomfortable with that. But I, right. I'll give you an example, and then then I have a couple of questions about it because to me it really resonated. Was uh, I, I gave the example recently of uh, a customer or prospect I was with, and the conversation sounded up something like this, uh, Mr. Prospect, why don't we do this? Why don't we get in the room together and I'm, I'll start at nine o'clock and I'm going to stop at 10.30. And at that stage, you haven't seen anything that floats your boat, that resonates with you. We should probably just stop there, shake hands, I'll give you back the rest of your day. But if you want me to continue, I'll continue to lunchtime. Same thing if it, you know, at that stage you haven't seen what we're suggesting enough that's going to bring some value to your business. We probably should just shake hands. It's not worth the effort of, and all the hassle of, of, of implementing it. However, if you want me to continue, we'll continue till three o'clock in the afternoon. If I'm still there and you haven't kicked me out, can we agree to sit down and work on a pilot program together? And, and, and that's kind of an example. And of course, he said yes to that. And I often use that with people and say, why is it so easy to say yes? It's because people have a no first that we've kind of shown them the exit signs because, and I wanted to, to, to know if that's some, something that you see in your world, that idea of that when people enter a room, whether it's physically or figuratively, that they're looking for an exit sign, that there's a, their guard is up and that when you can get them to be comfortable with no, that it's the conversation takes on a whole different tone. Well, there's kind of two pieces about there's there's two pieces that I'm hearing in that that I really like. Number one is, um, you know, one of the definitions that, that cranks up stress is you um, you don't know when it's going to be over. The fear of the unknown. When is this going to stop? Mm. So you start an approach you know, from the very beginning, and you say, look, this is what this is going to look like in, in time frames. Like the first time, I don't know if you took the guy to noon or, or nine thirty or ten o'clock, whenever it was. Instead of him sitting there wondering when this is going to be over, he's like, all right, I only got to last till, if this sucks, till 9.30, 10 o'clock, whatever time you put out. And when people begin to put some predictability in, in, in time frames, that's a whole change in the dynamic and their ability to tolerate it. That, 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 that's the back end part of that that I really like. Now, the, first, the front end part of that, yeah, is um, the, uh, this whole idea of no and how it relates to autonomy. And, and um, we, I first came across this when I read the book Start With No by Jim Camp back in 2002. And it was designed principally just to say, he, you know, his whole change in the approach was to say, just give permission, people permission to say no. He called it the right to veto. And and sort of very much like what you just said, like you could say no to me at any time and kick me out at any, at any point. Mm. So and I, and I, believed and I learned at that point in time, every salesperson, every great negotiator, every business person, their first major transition in their, in their development as executives is coming to grips with the word no. Mm. And I thought, all right, cool. Let's, you know, let's get comfortable with it. And then kind of accidentally after that, we started uh, intentionally getting people to say no and that has ended up to be nearly a revolutionary idea where this whole idea of what is the instant reaction when you've actually said no, it creates as much confidence as yes tends to create anxiety. When I say yes, I'm worried, what am I letting myself in for? What's the hook here? What's the path you lead me down? What's the trap you're setting? Mm. If I say no, if I say yes at some point, 
Have I made an implied commitment that I got to live up to? I mean, it's all this anxiety is created around the world, around the word yes. You can clearly say no and not feel like you committed to anything. Mm. which then causes people to be much more relaxed and much more willing to listen. You know, you said something has is, is, is got me thinking, which is around this development, developmental aspect of saying no, where people come to a point in their careers where they get comfortable doing that, that it's almost like a light bulb moment. Because I've often struggled yeah. to get people comfortable with saying, look, it's okay to say no. If this is not a fit in terms of what you're looking for, that's okay. You know, we're not for everybody. I've been able to say that and, and mean it. And they struggle with it. And they kind of, because I think they're, they, they believe their job in sales is to persuade you to say yes. So therefore, no right. never comes into that conversation. But there's a point, you can see it with the more senior people where they just get it. And maybe it is right. a developmental thing. Maybe it's something that I need to say to people, which is along the lines of, look, not everybody, you know, not everybody's going to get this. This is something that someday you're going to wake up and, and, and you believe it. And maybe that's just a technique to, to, to prick them into doing it. I don't know. But uh, I, I, do, I do think it's something that people in the early stages of their career, it's not that they're uncomfortable saying, I just don't think they get the importance. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, and I think part of the issue goes uh, earlier on is people think that yes is success. Yeah. And I used to kind of, I used to always trick my MBA students a little bit, um, especially early on. I'd say, if yes is success, then what is no? Yeah. And everybody said, well, you know, no is obviously failure. And then I'd come back, and my next slide would be like, who says yes is success? Mm. And that's when people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I've gotten, I've gotten, the, I've gotten the counterfeit yes a whole bunch of times, and I let my guard down because I thought I had success. Chris, there was something I, I was thinking as you were telling me that story, is around the, the 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 mindset that goes along with getting people to say yes. That if people are attached to a particular outcome, I need the deal. You mentioned success, whatever that is. Maybe right, that's getting right. a deal. Maybe that's getting a promotion, whatever. Is that if they're attached to that, it's very hard for them to even contemplate what no looks like. And, and maybe it's an age thing. We talked about de developmental because one, as you get older, you stop giving a shit about what, what other people think. About <laughs> that's one. Yeah. And maybe as yeah. you get more financial success, then you actually don't need any given deal. So you're comfortable, you know, you're in that state of mind that says, I'm financially independent and I don't need their business. So therefore, it's a lot easier to say, look, if this is not right, that's okay. You know, the subtext, there's a lot more fish in the sea and I can get busy talking to them rather than you. So, yeah, yeah, no, a thousand percent. And how do you get comfortable at that point? And it's typically people are less comfortable when they're, first, when they're young or first starting out or both. And they're, you know, they're desperate, they have, they have need that, that I got to have this deal, you've just taken yourself hostage. The other side, you just did a whole bunch of work for the other side. You know, they didn't take you hostage, you took your hostage. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Tell me, something else you said as well that, that piqued my interest. And I think you were talking about people making prospecting calls or calling on strangers where you said, you know, have you got a few minutes is bad. And that's ah, yeah. dead. Tell people what you reckon it should be instead. 
You know, it's simple. It's, it is now a bad time to talk. It's choice number one, uh, which then triggers a no. They can say no. They feel in control. Have you got, have you got a few minutes? They actually have to answer about five questions in their head before they can reconcile themselves to that. If they're answering questions in their head, they're not paying attention. Mm. Another one, uh, a salesperson um, that's been implementing our stuff with ridiculous success rates, he likes, have I caught you in the middle of something? Yeah. And he, he, he says every single time they either say, yes, you have, but what's this about? Or no, you haven't, but what's this about? Which then means you now, you now got their undivided attention for the next seven seconds, which is what you were after anyway. Yeah. What about this one? I want to try something with you and see from your experience what you think, does this work? I've probably caught you in the middle of something, or I probably caught you at a really bad time. Yeah, that's, a, that, that, that's fair enough. I mean, that, that, that preserves the other person's autonomy it's just a straight observation you're not asked you you know you're not asking for per se a yes you know you're not really you're making an observation so you know i i, I like that because I was, I was thinking that even if it is a bad time and they say yes you, in some respects you've gotten to say that's right it's a bad time yeah and yeah. And, if, and if it's not a bad time who cares you know i've said no 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 i've, I've got a couple of minutes it's still fine yeah yeah yeah, Although no, I, I like it's that all, It's always a bad time, I guess, for a salesperson. <laughs> it's always a bad time if you're not bringing value to the table, if you're going to waste my time. If you get down to it and you can actually, and you can listen to me and you're going yeah. to dial into my problems, it's always a good time. It's just nobody does that. Sure. Talk to me then about fight, flight, or make friends. Because <laughs> what struck me when I heard you talk about that was it's 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 the fighter you know it's the fight flight make friends instinct i guess that's you know when the amygdala floods the brain and it takes over but where i was curious is are you familiar with the disc model the 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 dominant personality the 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 uh it what we call the interactive personality the friendly approachable the s is the uh loyal open, approachable, and then the C is the very detail-oriented. And I just wonder, was there parallels between that, that behavioral style and people's instinct under pre pressure, or are they completely separate things? No, they're, 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 they're really close. I mean, we've, we've looked at the DISC model some and try to help people understand the adaptation. Be, and again, you're talking about, we got three categories, they got four. You know, yeah. a couple of those categories are a little more learned behavior. Um, the fight, flight, make friends is based off of something called the Tom and Kilman, Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument, which actually breaks out into five conflict categories. Mm. But I learned this at the same, you know, from the Harvard guys who believe that only three of those five are the instinctive, you know, the instinctive reaction to threat. Mm. You know, can I eat it? Will it eat me? Um, can I mate with it? Fight, flight, make friends. Yeah. Uh, is the same, is the same version. Um, and so, and, but then you get into blends of those categories really quick. So the disc model is really close to that. Yeah. I guess for, for me, just listening to you, the difference is the fight, flight, make friends is when, when under pressure, where the disc model is more, you know, your relaxed everyday scenarios where it's more about your preferred style rather than instinctive reaction. Right, exactly. That's your preferred style. And then, of course, in a negotiation, you're feeling pressure in some, in some fashion. You're feeling some, some sort of anxiety. 
Is that something that people consider? Because it, when you're planning for negotiation, you're going to take into account somebody's preferred style or the detail or the bottom line, etc. But then you've also got to plan for, well, when we get to the 11th hour, is that likely to change when their instinct comes out? Right. Their inner beast and they, and they want to fight where before maybe, you know, they're, they're very detailed, very structured, very deliberate, but then all of a sudden, when, when they're up against it, it's a very different character comes out. Is that something you see? Yeah, we see that on a regular basis and, and not just at the end, um, but also the, the, the type mismatches come out at impasse. Like almost every single impasse in negotiation is usually as the result of a tight mismatch. And then if you can, if you can navigate the fact that, you know, you're just kind of different animals at this point in time, we can probably work our way through the impasse a lot easier. So you say this a type impasse is where most negotiations break down. So let's pretend for a moment both sides understand. Let's say they're both, you know, dominant, bottom line oriented individuals where there's no type impasse. Take that off the table. Where do you see the obstacles to coming together and coming to a mutually agreeable deal where everybody's happy? Uh, it's a little bit more, and uh, the obstacles are uh, people don't like it. They're not happy with the deal if they don't feel hurt out. As dumb as it is, you know, you're not necessarily going to be unhappy with a deal if, as long as you feel like you got it treated fairly. Right. Like it's ridiculous what people will agree to if they feel they've been treated fairly. And the flip side is it's insane what they're unhappy with if they, if they feel like they were treated unfairly. I mean, I've had people walk away from deals. I've had business associates threaten to walk away from deals that would have put a half a million dollars in their pocket, is, which they were ecstatic about until they found out what the other side was getting. Mm. Now, your, your bottom line didn't change. Your take-home money didn't change in any way, shape, or form. Two seconds ago, you thought a half a million dollar deal was phenomenal, and you were ready to go out and drink champagne, but suddenly now, something that doesn't affect your, your own ability to pay your bills and take care of your family, completely external, your perception of what the other side got, now you're pissed and you think you got ripped off. You know, it's funny you should say that. It's, that is so true. You see it, let's, here's a scenario where uh, parents die and there's two children and they leave one 59%, 49% and the other 51% in their will. And 49% is a lot of money. But yeah. the fact that they got a little less, they're willing to go to court and spend a ton of money, far more than the 2% difference to yeah. seeing that it should be fair and split evenly. It is so true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it, it it and I even react like that sometimes. I got to stop myself. So it's 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 yeah. built into our DNA. We get you know we got to watch out for it. Yeah, it's the old cut your nose to spite your face scenario. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that that would then because you know where where good communication isn't present, one side can can be wrong and may they feel like the other side has not been fair, but because there hasn't been clear on the table communication, people's fears about being cheated or, uh, or, or that the scenario is not unfair may guide their actions rather than the, the reality. That, that's yeah, man. Yeah, it's just that ability to be 100% clear 
and no mutual mystification. Yeah, yeah, and, and boy, you let, you let the caveman brain, you know, the amygdala, the, the reptilian brain, whatever you want to call it, that baby's, that baby's in, our, in our thoughts at all points in time, and it's, and it's willing to jump back out and make us mad really easily. So that then leads us on nicely to this concept of win-win in negotiations. And I have a theory, and I'd like to test it w with you as an expert in this area, is that win-win is often misunderstood. People think that if I give you lots, you're winning, and if I get lots, that winning can sometimes, it's more about, it's more about the, the inch that I gain that I've had to fight hard for, I feel more strongly about that than the yard you just gave up. So you could give me lots. If, if I just leaned on you as a negotiator and you gave up everything, I, I don't feel like a one of lot, even though technically it's a lot. I feel that the, the, the little bit that I had to really fight hard for, I feel, I guess, that's more of a win for me. I feel prouder about that. Is that something that's that's real, or am I just talking complete horseshit? No, man, you got you got to take that into account. That's a real hard thing for really genuine people to come to grips with, and you know we often refer to it as ignore human nature at your peril. Mm. And if if I can if I can give you something and I want to give it to you, if I don't make you work for it, you're gonna be disappointed in it. Mm. And I will have actually shortchanged you. You know, to some degree, you have to take into account that being too collaborative is bad for the deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because it wasn't even a negotiation. It was, I was buying some software recently and the guy just said, oh, of course, and today you can have this 10% discount. And I, I, I didn't feel like I'd won anything. I just thought, okay. It, it didn't make me feel good at all. And it's, it's weird. I just think people are really uncomfortable doing that arm wrestle, playing the, look, I, I, I might be able to get you this, but if I'm to do that, then what I need in return is that. And it's, it just, I guess it brings us back to, there's the technical side of negotiation, but none of it works unless people have the courage, the assertiveness to get into that adult adult zone and say here's my gives here's what i need in return and be comfortable with it yeah assertiveness is a necessary element for a variety of reasons for negotiations i mean it's one of the default types that we talk about mm. we don't want you to be only assertive but yeah you gotta you know if you're gonna be an effective negotiator you're gonna make deals that the other side and you are happy with you got to have some assertiveness in there. And that was what you were just talking about. And can you train that, Chris? Um, I, yeah, you can. I mean, and how you train it depends a little bit with different people. Like of the three types, uh, the relationship-oriented person who mm. focuses on relationships. I'll teach that type to be assertive because I'm going to say, look, your, your relationships are going to go to hell. If, if you don't use them, you know, I'll take their, their ability to hold great relationships hostage. Like the, uh, the assertive type, um, I don't got to teach him to be he, him or her to be assertive. So I'm going to work on relationship oriented, but the, but the analytical type, the, the, the person who doesn't like assertiveness because they don't like conflict. Mm. I'll say, look, you, you know, you're not going to have the best deal without it. I mean, 
you can't reach the, and their, their interest is how do I calculate out getting to the best deal? And I want that path. And I'll, I'll teach that person, not, not based on the nature of the relationship because you don't have a value relationship. So mm. You'll see them as a separate thing. Mm. But if you want to analyze how to get to the best deal possible, you're just not going to get there without assertiveness. Mm. So it's a necessary element, but who, uh, how, the reason why it needs to be picked up by the person I'm trying to teach it to is going to vary. Mm. I wonder then, something I've seen over the years is where come end of quarter, where there's a lot of pressure on reps to close deals, that their manager's there, is that deal closed yet? Deal closed yet? Deal closed yet? When is it going to come in? We need this deal. That that pressure actually is counterproductive in empowering the sales rep to negotiate the the best deal possible. Would you agree or disagree? Well, it, you know, here's my it depends answer. Um, because, like, in the beginning stages, like, if you're dealing with a procrastinator, you, you, you may need to pressure that guy. I think that only in the early developmental stages when you have to teach people that they got to resolve stuff. You know, you're, um, one of the biggest problems people have is a lack of resolution. Make it, you know, get this resolved one way or the other. Now, once you've come to grips with that you have to resolve stuff, then it's not the best way to move people forward. That pressure then which at one point in time, at the very beginning stages was helpful, people then think that now this is a recipe for every stage of development, and it's not. Mm. Um, and I think people, a lot of management people, they get one or two successes because they got a procrastinator and that using pressure on them worked. Now they want that to be the prescription for everybody. Right. And it's just not. So the vast majority of the time, it's counterproductive. Managers, I think, get um, seduced into it by the one or two people that it, that it helped move forward. That, that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. You talk, Chris, about this concept, tactical empathy. What's that? I've never heard the term before. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, first of all, empathy is one of the most misused terms these days. It's so much in everybody's vernacular that it, it has become synonymous with sympathy, which is not what it is, or compassion. It's not what it is. Empathy is understanding. And by definition, that doesn't mean compassion, sympathy, uh, agreement, disagreement, understanding, pure and simple. Mm. So that's the first part. We're trying to get people to think about it differently. And then the second part is we know so much about how the brain works now. Like, I know I'm listening for specific things. I know a sequence of decision-making, and I know how to, how to hack that sequence. So if I know that based on how the, the mind works, then why don't I apply it in a tactical fashion? I know that your misgivings are the biggest problems. The reasons why you won't do something are much more important than why you would do something. I know I can accelerate the decision-making process by dealing with negatives as opposed to trying to pitch positives. So that's the tactical application of how the brain really works. Where's the line, though, in empathy, between empathy and sympathy, that if I have too much empathy, if I really, really care, then it, it triggers sympathy in, instead of understanding? 
Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's another thing that people got to come to grips with. I mean, I learned this way back when they, they taught us on a crisis hotline where I, I learned emotional intelligence. Talk about a master class in emotional intelligence. And they said, look, if someone's in quicksand, sympathy is getting into quicksand with them. How does that help? It mm. doesn't. So empathy is just the identification of what their issues are, emotional, physical problems identification, understanding, not agreement, not disagreement. As soon as you begin to sympathize or you begin to identify, instead of identify it, but identify with and feel it, now you begin to lose your own perspective on it. And so, you know, keeping it at, at an arm's length is, is the challenge, but it's also the key to effectiveness. You know, you've helped me understand a longstanding problem I've had. My wife will not play Monopoly with me. <laughs> and she won't i'm serious because if she sees somebody is about to go bankrupt she'll start giving them money or if she is in trouble and i'm she let's say she lands on a hotel that i have and i'm going okay that's two thousand dollars and that's going to put her out of business she gets upset with me i'm going but you've just landed on my property. This is, give it to me. This, <laughs> this is the game. <laughs> and uh, now I can explain to her that she, she's got sympathy. I've got empathy. <laughs> I know you're on my hotel property. I know. <laughs> I, I empathize. Now hand over the money. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah. No, she still won't play. Not a chance. Um, <laughs> you mentioned something else, uh, something called labeling. Does that, yeah. yeah, does that, is that, do I need some context on that for you? Well, you know, the coolest thing about labeling in a hostage negotiation, we called it emotion labeling. Right. And, um, you know, most people that are in therapy and psychology, you know, I'll, I'll tell them about labeling, how powerful it is. They go, I heard of that before. You know, I'm not impressed with it. And I'll think, all right, fine. You just sit there in your narrow view of the world. Mm. But what, what is the coolest thing about it for me is, all right, so we come out of, I come out of the FBI. I got, I got eight hostage negotiation skills. Let's call them the FBI. Mm. I really only thought, based on Jim Camp's book, that the real tool was what we used to call open-ended questions. And we now call them calibrated questions because we, we, we further define them for very intentional effect now. I thought that was really the only hostage negotiation tool that we were going to bring out. And I brought out all eight skills because I'm like, ah, you know, if this is going to, you know, you got to get an A paper. You got to, you can't have one skill. You got to have eight skills. Yeah. Really thought that this thing that we call now call labels was the most irrelevant and in adapting it and in all the, the laboratories of the real world negotiations that we had with MBA students, we found that labels was actually the most powerful. We're at the point now, my son and I, and if you're, if you're picking up background, uh, are you picking up that background noise? No. My son and I, um, we can work away entirely through negotiations using labels only. I love this. I think this is brilliant. I think this is, is, is so, so powerful. Uh, I heard something, it reminds me of, I heard years ago where a prospect was upset with a salesperson and the salesperson, rather than, you know, why are you upset? All they did was, you seem upset. 
That was it. Yes. You seem upset. Uh, yeah, I'm upset. And it just allowed them to pour out and, and, and get it off their chest. And, it, and, and the salesperson was kind of stayed outside the game. Now, would that be a, another example of labeling? Exactly. That would exactly be it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That, that, you know, so powerful. And there was something else you said, and I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to ask you one last question on this one, Chris. Is you mentioned calibrated questions, and it was a term I love. Could you just explore that with me a little bit further? Yeah, well, we took, you know, we took the standard list of uh, open-ended questions or interrogative questions or reporters' questions, you know, the who, what, when, where, mm. how, and why. And we, we want we to select the, the two that are the most deferential, which then means they're going to trigger the most information. And it really boils down to first what and how questions. And nearly all of the others, with a slight tweak, can be changed to a what and how question. And let's go back to the, if you're going to ask a question in uh, a customer, uh, salesperson dealing with a potential customer who's upset, you could say, why are you upset? Or you can say, what's causing you to be upset? Mm. And a second one is going to get a much bigger answer than the first one. Right. So it's, it's, it's what's, yeah, it's, it's what's behind the behavior rather than, trying to justify the behavior. Uh, exactly. That's exactly right. And when people can no longer have to justify it, but they simply talk about what's behind it, then they feel less accused. They feel less put yeah. on the spot. Yeah. There is so much to know, learn, and master about human communications, about keeping people feeling okay, keeping guard downs. It's a fascinating field. It really is. I guess negotiation is just one domain. Selling is another. Customer service is another. But they all overlap. And, and at the bottom of it all, it seems to me, is a self-awareness and a, an awareness of what's happening between two people and an ability to step in and step out, ask the right questions, tell the right stories, apply the right labels. It's so complex but so powerful. It really is. It's, it's a fascinating area w w you're in, I'm in. Uh, I don't think we'll ever run out of business, that's for sure. No, it's fast and it's a lot of fun too. I mean, even though it's complex, it is a lot of fun. It's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. Chris, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Unfortunately, we are over, over time. It's been insightful and just chock full of value. Where can people get in contact with you? Best right, the, you know, the absolute best way is to subscribe to our newsletter. It comes out uh, once, once a week on Tuesday mornings. It's complimentary. It's free. It's a good price. And uh, short, sweet articles on. And then also it's the gateway to the website. Um, we've got training announcements. We talk about free products that we're putting out. I mean, it is the gateway to everything we have. Perfect. I will make sure I'll put that link up. I'm going to put a copy of this podcast on LinkedIn and I'll put a copy, a, a link to your newsletter as well. That's on your main website, I take it. It is. It's, uh, it's listed as the blog on a website. The website is blackswanltd.com and uh, the name of the blog is The Edge. Fantastic. I never did ask you why you shouldn't split the difference. <laughs> it's always a bad idea. It just is such a bad idea. It's, it's, I give you example after example where splitting the difference or compromise just destroyed everything. I take it. So when people can get an answer to that, at the subscribe to your newsletter. 
Yeah, you know, and um, just buy the uh, book, right? Buy the book. Buy the book. Buy it's buy on the Amazon. Book. There is so much more in the book. I mean, we've only just touched on some topics here. So people are are listening to this and they're thinking that's interesting. I never thought of it that way, or that reminds me of just buy the book because there's so much more in there. It really is. It's, there's so much experience and insight between two covers. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that's it. It remains for me to thank you very much and looking forward to uh, getting that podcast out there.